Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Colin Dupuy, and if you're not familiar with him, he is a Detroit-based, multi-Grammy-nominated and two-time Grammy-winning producer, mixer, musician, and engineer. And in his career, he's had the chance to work with artists such as Lana Del Rey, St. Vincent, Dr. John, The Black Keys, Rayla Montang, and so many more. And in this conversation, we have a great chat all about the idea of being flexible in the studio. And flexibility can apply to lots of different things. It can apply to your career. It can apply to actually being in the studio and being flexible with the needs of artists or working with different equipment or different mic techniques, all that kind of stuff. As you'll hear in this interview, Colin is a pretty adaptable guy. He seems to be very easygoing and will pretty much work with whatever he has given in front of him. And I think that there's a lot of great lessons to learn from that. And you're going to learn how to be adaptable in your studio and how to really get the most out of it. And Colin is one of those people who doesn't feel like he needs to be working in a big studio. He is very adaptable again. And, you know, he'll work out of smaller spaces. And he's got some great tips in this episode for how you can get the most out of your small spaces and ways that you can Make your mixes still sound big, but without having to rely on, you know, a big room or fancy plate reverbs or whatever. He's got lots of great tips here that I think you're going to be able to take and run with so you can get great results from your home studio. So with that said, let's just jump into this interview because I think there's a lot of great stuff in here. Colin Dupuy, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going, man? Great. Can't complain. Awesome. For people who might not be familiar with you or your background, can you give us a, a little bit of that story on who you are, how you got started, and ultimately how you got into what you're currently working on today? Cool. Yeah. Um, thank you for having me on. It's, it's always a pleasure to be able to discuss uh, my experiences in life with music and audio. Um, because I'm sure that like my wife just goes, okay, yeah. <laughs> you go, no, no, no. She's just like, eyes glaze over. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so I don't get as much time to in my life to talk about this stuff, um, which is always nice to hear uh, one's voice discussing things they love to do, right? Of course. Um, <laughs> when you spend a lot of time doing something, you end up really uh, getting to the point where you love it. Sometimes you hate it, but usually you love it and you, you obsess over it. So kind of try to keep it so it's not too long-winded. Um, I'm a music person. I started playing music and instruments when I was young. I got a drum set when I was like five or six. It was kind of like a piecemeal thing. And then that kind of fell apart. And then I got another drum set when I was like 12. And then that's kind of the drum set I had all through high school and up until my early 20s. And then I started making money doing like jobs and paying or more instruments and buying more drums. And, you know, my drum set collection ended up expanding very large where I had lots of snare drums and things. And I went and studied and auditioned uh, jazz at Michigan State University, uh, just jazz performance, because I wasn't interested in becoming a teacher. I was just interested in, like, learning what playing jazz meant, like, because I got bit by the bug. And, like, like what is what is improvising? How are you improvising with other people in real time? And, and learning the language of that, you know, around uh, traditional jazz and swing and also like Afro-Cuban and Afro-Cuban percussion and drums and things like that. So I studied that for a couple of years 
and kind of that became a part of my rock and roll drumming. Like it turned my rock and roll drumming into a more finessed uh, musical language instead of just being like, I know how to go dig 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 kind of stuff, but I could go, okay, this is a clave and this is how you can play grooves over the clave. And these are grooves that are based off of claves. And here's solos you can do listening to claves and practicing in that kind of more musical way. So anyways, I did that for years, played in bands, um, met my friend in a band, Norm Druce, who rest in peace, runs a company called, was running a company called Atomic Instruments. They sell power supplies for SSLs and they make near field monitors uh, for, and some custom big, large main monitors. He's, he made one, he was alive and I've even actually made a pair for them. But anyways, so him and I became friends for years and we ran a studio together and that's kind of how the bug got bit is he was kind of into that anyways. We, we were in a band together and we both just started buying recording equipment. That was in our early 20s. I'd say like 21, 22. We started buying gear, living in a house together. Oh, now we got this. Now we got an MS-16. Now we have like a, a mixing board to hook up the MS-16. Now we have a 2-inch 24 track, JH24, you know, MCI. And like it went from there to getting this other broadcast board and finding things for sale on Craigslist and the internet early days of the internet like you know internet craigslist listings really you know that kind of stuff or like newspaper listings even like <laughs> classify ads and finding stuff um we ended up having studio recorded punk bands metal bands rock bands or whatever like jam bands whatever band that would come into the studio we would record and i ended up working that for a while simultaneously working jobs and then i got a, an internship slash assistant position this guy named glenn brown who's like a grammy winning engineer in lansing michigan uh and he's great he's an acoustician he's a designer he designs studios i started assisting for him at his studio he has all the real deal equipment like neve 1073s and pultex and pultec microphone preamps and shep's microphones and like c12 c24s m m49s like all <laughs> all the really amazing neumann microphones he has all this stuff so I had a chance to kind of like go, oh, equipment does make a difference, but it's still um, kind of get a sense of like the high pro quality of stuff. And that's when Pro Tools was just starting to happen. He had an 888 system when I started working for him. So I started working for him when the 888 system was the system. And that's why I got into Pro Tools. I got, and then the Digio One came out and I got one of those. And I kind of got that for our studio and played around with that and, learn from him and then i started working in detroit because he like got me connected to somebody in a studio and i wired the studio and i got a job there and i started being the assistant engineer in that studio and it was a rap studio so i did a lot of hip-hop and rap and r&b and um then i that just kind of kept moving i worked at vintage king audio while i was doing that and i worked end up working for a techno producer in detroit and just kind of kept moving from there and then lo and behold i get a call from dan Auerbach about wiring his studio in Akron before he was really big. And they just, Black Keys were just, they were a medium-sized band touring and, and getting more popular before their one album made them blow, brothers where they really kind of blew up. And like, it just all these things lined up. These opportunities lined up. Like I said yes to wiring his studio and then he called me and said, I'm moving to Nashville and opening a studio. Do you want to help me open it? I had no intention of moving to Nashville. I was just going to come down there and help him make sure it was working. Really, that's all that wired up. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm in there making a record with them. 
And then all of a sudden I'm making a Black Keys record. And all of a sudden I'm making a Dr. John's record. And all of a sudden I'm renting an apartment. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> fast forward 11 years, I'm moving back to Detroit from there. It's like all that, kind of how it works, right? Is like the, I think the lesson of the story that, at least my story is that I kept in a really important viewpoint that saying yes is probably the most important thing you can do when an opportunity arise and to set yourself up at the moment in life that you can. Obviously, if you have certain familial responsibilities and whatnot, but I, I purposefully kept away from that. I mean, I have a daughter now and I love having family and there's nothing wrong with that, but I purposefully in my early 20s and late 20s kind of said, like, this is what I'm going to focus on. And I yeah. kept away from um, commitment, really. I mean, it's a selfish thing kind of in a way, but it's the reality of it. It's like at that age, it's like, do I want to dig into this thing I'm super obsessed about or do I want to spend my time uh, dealing with certain aspects of, of just normal life, which is fine. Normal <laughs> life is great. But the music and business at that time required... It's changing a lot. I think because a lot of people are getting work-life balance attitudes, change and whatnot. People are starting to say like, no, no to working, you know, yeah. 16 hours a day and things like that. So I think back then that's just kind of the choice I made to, to just dig in and, and commit to it and say yes to everything and see what happens. And some, some stuff failed. Some stuff just was like a job and some stuff led to some other stuff. Right. And yeah. that's just how it works yeah, really, I, in I, life. I love that. Yeah. With everything. Did you feel like when you were saying yes to a lot of those gigs that like you weren't ready for those gigs or like Oh, absolutely. Okay. I, without any question I was I was wholly unqualified for some stuff. Not saying by the time Dan Auerbach got a hold of me, I had made a lot of records and I was ready. I could handle 2-inch 24-track calibration and like running a tape machine, running into Pro Tools, recording onto the tape machine simultaneously running through Pro Tools headphone mixes off of Pro Tools and dumping the tape in when we listened to playback. Like I was ready to track on a, like what would be considered a professional level with microphones and having no, no qualms about being able to handle complex routing and wiring studios and thinking about complex uh, routing. Cause that's really what it comes down to engineering mm -hmm. at a high level is really having your head around uh, complex signal flow and never feeling like flustered by it. Like if something comes up or something isn't working, you like, Oh, I know where, where that's coming from you can figure out quickly. You're not like keeping everyone waiting for 40 minutes trying to solve why something isn't working. Like, yeah, it's more of that confidence in the troubleshooting process. Yeah. And be able to like in your head, know like where the routing is going. So be able to really quickly suss out that it's a certain piece of gear or whatnot is causing the problem or a certain patch point. So, um, yeah, I don't know. The reason I ask is because I know so many people listening to this that like just are, are so afraid, like their, their dream is to pursue this as a career or what, you mm -hmm. know, but like they're also just waiting for the time when they're ready before they can like feel confident to jump in. No, you're not. You're never ready. Yeah. That's the lesson of the story is that you're only ready when you're right there in the moment and you're learning and, and you're adapting and you're taking the challenge and you're failing at, at some of the, some of it, right? You're going to erase something. You're going to not capture the right take. You're, you're going to delete something off of a hard drive, right? Like that's going to happen. It happens to everyone. It's going to happen to you. Um, and all you have to do is be honest with the whole situation. Be honest with the people you're working with that you deleted something, you fucked up. And if you get fired, that's the deal. 
like that's the way it is if they don't fire you because you were being honest they're like okay cool don't do it again is what they'll say <laughs> you know like but they'll give you a second chance yeah, hopefully you're working with reasonable people <laughs> yeah yeah most people are reasonable every yeah. now and then you get some people who are highly unreasonable but that's just you know the the nature of human beings too so yeah um yeah i think it's important to keep in mind that like you're you're as a person learning something you're totally ready for it like if you're in the room you're ready for it like if someone looks at you and says like hey why don't you do it now the engineer's not showing up and you're the uh runner right you know like maybe you aren't ready for it but you should step up and try and before you know it you might be like oh i'm actually handling this you know mm-hmm. you probably wouldn't be in the room no one would allow you to be there if you couldn't they didn't think that you could hang anyways right like because you know there's that is that little bit of that uh you got to get through the door and get through the internship kind of proving yourself pr- proving your salt by um sticking with like the frustration of, of the first month or so of not getting paid very much you know like and, and the other reality is now like because so many big studios have closed down i don't think that the route that the assistant runner position, unless you live in LA, Nashville, or New York, and even in New York, you're not going to get an assistant position very easily, right? Like those mm-hmm. just aren't around. Like there's not studios going, hey, we're looking for assistant engineers, like and runners. It's like they're stocked full up and they have a long list of people who've already applied. So I think the traditional route of becoming good at being an engineer or a producer, um, you have to just kind of disregard that as a even a vague possibility i think at this point i think you have to be honest that it's really like you you're becoming your own business right if you're getting into this you're becoming your own business owner and so now you have to learn about all of that stuff right you have to you're going to wear more than one hat you're not just going to be the engineer you're going to be also the person who's dealing with clients and booking the time and scheduling and 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 whatnot so if you want to be good at engineering or production or whatever you really the technology we're in the we're in the middle of the high point of technology where like you can do it all yourself you don't have to learn from someone else but it will take you longer Absolutely. you have to keep in mind it will take you longer you're not getting the experience of being in a high pressure environment with people who have way more experience than you you're not getting that time of like seeing them deal with situations and fail mm-hmm. and make and make amazing things too. So you don't get that experience in this new way, new paradigm that we're in. So you are going to be watching more YouTube videos and learning and practicing and whatnot. So then that means that it's going to take you longer, which is fine. It's the reality of it. It's going to take um, longer for you to get to the point where you might actually be making a living from it. And that's the thing you have to be really realistic about is like, are you going to make a living from this? And if you plan on that, what is the amount of money you think you're going to make? Yeah. And be realistic about that. And if you shoot, I mean, the other thing is psychologically set your goals really high. Try to say like, I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to be really good at this and I'm going to be successful. Great. I think you should absolutely take that attitude, but you have to be realistic about how long that's going to take and when it's going to happen and whatnot. Absolutely. Be open to it. Yeah. Well, I love that you brought up that idea of like, being an engineer or sorry, being an entrepreneur versus like that traditional role of, you know, getting into engineering. Working for someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because even like, like that's largely how my, myself, like how my career has been. Like I, I did start at some studios and I interned and very quickly I realized like, even then 
there's still a cap for like how far you can go. Cause usually someone owns a studio and like they're the big shot there. And like you're not going to get a lot of those gigs. Like there's usually like uh, kind of a, a maybe. Point where, I mean, at, at least in my experience, I, those were the places I was working where I just felt like, okay, like someone owns this place. I'm never going to get like the big gigs because they're always going to take those things. Well, yeah, some of the, the in those studios, I, I would say that I, I would say not completely. I sli- yeah. slightly disagree with that because what happens often in those situations is that you're a person in the room who's there helping keep everything moving and you're an important part of that process when you're an intern or, or a, a second engineer, third engineer, right? Ass- assistant number two. You're not even the main assistant. You're the second assistant. Mm-hmm. No, you're assistant to the assistant. But being in that position, A, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about patience and time and how much time it takes to do stuff. And you, you see other people doing the process. So you learn a lot of stuff a lot quicker than you would on your own. Like, how do you cut vocals properly? How do you, when we got properly is like, with the intent behind what the goal is of the sound of the, like how the microphone's positioned oh, and all that, like yeah. the intention for the production. So you learn how to do that stuff much quicker. And the other thing is that you are in the room when something fails and you know it more than someone else because you're younger and you have more experience with certain technology, like the routing and IT and all that, all that shit. And some older guys like, ah, fucking, it's not working. And you go, and they're like, in their mind, like, uh oh, that guy right there is keep. Let's keep him around. Let's start giving him more work. And what they do is the 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 lead engineers start pushing stuff on you, like, oh, you can handle that. Okay, can you handle this? And they start giving you work and responsibility. So they're. I would say they're both, they're all, all routes to doing this is valid. Of course. It's just some have a quicker path than others. And I would say if you really want to get someplace quicker in the music industry um, and you want to do it in a level that you have some vision, you have a grand vision of working with top A list uh, pop artists in, in the major label music industry, then you should move to Los Angeles or Nashville. Like that's the fucking reality, right? Yeah. Like there, maybe you'll be doing something in a local level that explodes and they bring you along with them, but not often. Fair. Yeah. Often art <laughs> artists, when they get big, they move to LA and they move someplace and they don't bring the, everyone with them. There's yeah. some people who, who have, um, who do operate that way, but most of the time they don't. Right. Mm-hmm. They just move. They don't move the people who help them make, make what they did. So, um, if you have a vision to do something, there's nothing wrong with pushing to try to do that on the highest level. What does that mean? I don't know. I mean, in five years from now, AI is going to wipe all of this slate in a different direction clean, right? This whole conversation you and I are having about these routes are going to drastically change. Of course. What that's going to look like, who knows, right? Yep. yep. So uh, the advice I'm giving you here today should be taken greatly with a grain of salt <laughs> because <laughs> I can't predict the future and no one can. So. Of course. Yeah. But, but I do think that it is really important for people who are getting started to like, at least have that, um, you know, like, like you said earlier, like, you know, have that entrepreneurial kind of attitude going into it where like you're doing, you can do a lot of this on your own and yeah, it might yeah, take absolutely. a little longer, like you said, but you know, you can do this. And, and to some degree, heck, you might even be able to get paid faster sometimes when you're doing it on your own because you're the one in, char- in charge of that, right? So there, there's those opportunities there for sure. Oh, absolutely. There's, and there's clients out there who just don't know who to go to. And if you develop a rapport with them and, and artists and clients that you develop a rapport with and they like you and you like them and you get along and you have a working relationship, 
they will come to you when they get a budget to do something and say, let's do this because I like how you work and I like working with you, right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to go and blow all, all of their budget, their newly minted budget they may have gotten from some private investor or small label on an expensive studio with a big name attached to it for one day of time to try to track a whole record versus going to you who's charging a third of that and be able to get more time in the studio to be creative because I already know your space and, they, and they're used mm -hmm. to it. So um, you and your space. So I would say there's nothing wrong with any route of it. It's about just being realistic as to what it is you're trying to do and uh, being true to what it is your ethos is in that process. So I think that's another important thing to, to, to point out is like you have to be, you have to generate uh, positivity, but you also have to have a sense of what your goal is in all of this. Like you have to have an opinion. You have to have a stance to take in the, your part in this. You can't just be a cog that has no opinion because then you're just an AI assistant for somebody, right? Who's going to press record and they're like, irreplaceable you have to have skill sets that the computers can't replace which is taste and opinion yeah. and direction and so you should have a focus i think it's really important to kind of like like because i think this is what a lot of younger um engineers including myself when i was in my 20s of just searching for i had a, a very specific viewpoint of sound at that point the records i was into so that's what that's all i focused on was that was the sound i was looking for and what i was trying to get and sometimes you know to the detriment of some of the projects i was trying to do techniques microphone techniques that maybe weren't right for the music but i'm learned i learned something i learned that it wasn't working right yeah so but i still had a point i had a, a, an ethos to what i was trying to do and i i would say no to projects if i didn't feel that i could at least push it in that direction a little bit if they didn't if they came to me and i maybe it's an egotistical thing i don't know but i think it worked out for me that i kept kind of a standpoint of saying like i kind of i have at this moment in time this is what i'm interested in doing so this is what i'm going to the kind of work i'm going to take on instead of saying like oh whatever you want to do i said for yes sure. to a lot of different things but even then there was a limitation as to where I would go with it. And of I still course. do that to this day because I know that when I listen to something and it's not, it's not me, it's not, I'm not going to bring my best. I'm wasting their time and taking their money. So of like, course. that's not, that's not ethical to me to, yeah. to be there like yawning in the background, you know? Well, it just goes to that point that you were making earlier of like setting your, your goals and like setting mm -hmm. your vision for it and just executing on that. And yeah, sometimes yep. that means saying no, but that's pushing you in the right direction. You know, if, if you were to say yes, it could steer you somewhere completely different, right? Mm -hmm. And maintaining that. You have to maintain that for a period of time, too. And, and that's kind of part of, of the uh, separating the wheat from the shaft kind of scenario is that, like, if you put your time in and dig in and have a focus to what you're trying to achieve and you don't, like, stray from that too much, you will refine it and get better at that thing you're trying to do. And mm -hmm. eventually you get really so good at the thing you're trying to do that your interests start getting interested in other things and your tastes change and you learn things and then you start developing different tastes towards the way you're 
creating sounds and how you're capturing things and your production sensibilities and whatnot change. And yeah. that's the normal evolution of it. Um, yeah. Absolutely. But you still should always keep a, I think it's better to do less more focused than to do everything unfocused. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely having that, that. If that makes sense. No, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Some people are all over the place and they, yeah, there, there's no, sometimes like, yeah, having that focus makes it easier for other people to identify when you're the right person for them as well, because they, they know mm-hmm. that like, this is what that person is known for. That's their thing. Right. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Especially as you're developing a name, like it, early on, no one knows who you are. Right. Like you're not, you can't go off of your name. You can't go off of your past experiences because no one knows any of it. Right. So it's really about like how you can present yourself and what you can bring to the, to the opportunity. I would say earlier on, it's better to take more stuff, more gigs that you don't necessarily align with musically just for the experience. So you can kind of cut your teeth. I think it's better like your first five years, if you're going to do this on your own, first five years should be taking everything, like saying yes to every single thing, no matter what kind of music, what style, genre, and just saying yes to it and trying it. And then through that process of that period of time, you will discover a, if you actually ever want to actually even want to do this professionally, because in that five years, the first five years, you're going to figure out like humans are hard to deal with. And some humans are really hard to deal with. Right. So you're going to get a sense of like, is all of this worth it for you? And some people cut, they're like, Oh, okay. I did this. This is not me. And you learn and that's a good, and there's nothing wrong with accepting that and moving on and doing something else in life. Yeah. But if you're truly obsessed with this and you, and and I say obsessed, truly into this as an art form, then that first five years will tell you a lot about like what you find yourself drawn to in this. Like you might not know that you were drawn to doing world style music, but all of a sudden you start doing music for people who are from different countries in your community and you start recording stuff and you're like, wow, I never had a chance to record all these people singing language. I don't know together in a group. And like you start capturing and start learning about how to capture it in a certain way. And you start developing a relationship with that community. And all of a sudden you're like now doing all these different things in that world. And you never knew you were going to be doing that because you said yes to everything. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know that you actually even felt that that's more fun than doing like, uh, a bunch not saying anything wrong with trap music but just doing just trap right yeah, yeah. or just whatever or just metal bands right like if all you do is metal bands and you don't really like metal that much you might want to question why you're doing metal bands right <laughs> absolutely it comes, it comes that thing where it's like are you really happy doing this like yeah. do you want to devote your entire career like, you know, 30 plus years or whatever to listening to music that you don't like and that you can't stand being around or whatever, you know? That, that yeah, kind of personality so. types and stuff like that. Yeah, so it's also, there's a high probability that that you will get tired of something too. Mm-hmm. A certain style. Even if you started out loving it, after a while you'd just be like, I don't really want to listen to style music now. So it's also important to take cues from yourself internally as to when you start to notice that you're kind of getting burned out on a certain way of approaching production absolutely and and be willing to switch gears and change change directions and even if that means you lose some money in the process Mm -hmm. to relearn a new skill set within the same world and i did that several times in my career where i went from this to this to this to that right hardcore bands, metal bands. Now I'm working a rap studio and i'm learning how to sync up mpcs with the pro tools and midi and keyboards and 
and then I'm doing techno music and then I'm mastering techno and doing it's like and then I'm doing blues rock stuff the black keys it's just it's that process where it's like and jazz records thrown in there and gospel records thrown in there it's like this thing where like you have it's it's always about kind of figuring out like where to go at times there's times where you file, feel like you're floating along you don't know what musical thing you're going to be working on next and that happens more i think now with mixing being just strictly a mixer it's more i say yes a lot more than i used to because mm-hmm. it's more about what can i bring to this they're obviously get a hold of me because of something i've done in the past they're not getting a hold of me because of course they look my name up in a phone book or whatever like you know yeah. they're like searching me out so they've made a choice to search me out which means they've made a decision to think that like my back catalog is good enough for the, of a thing for me to, they're coming to me because I'm going to do something the way I do it. So, yeah. Um, I typically say yes, unless something comes to me and it's like, I listen to it and I'm like, I have no idea what to do with this. Right. <laughs> yeah. I listen to it. It's like, okay, I don't, I can't help. I don't think I could help you. Let me try. We'll do a test mix, you know, like, you know, pay me half my rate for this song and we'll do a test mix and see what happens. Yeah. And maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised or maybe it'll be exactly as I thought it would be. Yeah. I love hearing that though. I think, I think it's so important to hear that like to this day, you still say yes, even though sometimes you're not like a hundred percent confident that you're the right fit for it or whatever, like, or that, or that you're prepared for it, you know? So it's you don't like, know for sure. Yeah. I mean, you can't tell. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's three, I think there's two or three parts of, of a relationship with a client that have to kind of work, all work out. One is you have to be able to work with them. Like both, there's a two-way street. Like they have to enjoy you as a person and your personality and the way you communicate and, and respect what you're doing and vice versa. You have to enjoy who they are as a person. You have to, and they have to be commu- clear communicators as to what they are trying to get. Even if that means you have to go through this process of interpreting art, artistic language, um, at least if they're willing to work with you on it and they're not just, they don't just go like just, fix it you know like have a bad attitude um if they can do all of these things um and it can work out and you guys work good together then that's a huge part of it that's like actually 80 or 90 percent of getting a project done is like your ability to work together right the art and the music is itself but like if the person you're working with or you are being incompatible like you're you're not willing to budge or learn or change something or you're you're steadfast in like, I'm going to do it. This is how I always do. I always put the 1176 on the bass and then they get like, well, I don't like how the bass sounds. And you're like, well, you know, this is how I always do it. I've read, you know, I read it. You do it this way or I learned it to do it this way. And it's like, that's not going to fly on some projects. So you have to, you have to just, you know, that's the main part of it is human communication, developing relationships, being able to, to deal with, people who maybe are not the best communicators um, to get through the project uh, or waiting really long, long periods of time to get notes about mixes. Like we're like, we have this goal and deadline. And then like two months go by and you're like, are we finishing this record soon? (laughs) And they're like, Oh yeah, sorry. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's just what it is. Like, of course. um, Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know if that answered the question or whatever. No, for sure. I I think that's, I think that's a really important conversation for people to have who are like, you know, for anyone who's actually considering getting into this industry as a career, it's like, you have to be reflective of, you know, what your goals are and what, Mm -hmm. what that career, like decide what that career path can look like for you. And if it suits your lifestyle and all those other things that you design for your own life. So, um, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's really important. Um, 
that said, I do want to switch gears a little bit more towards some uh, some some more like technical production, fun, like you know, nerdy nerdy stuff. So so earlier you were saying that when you were working at the studio, I think it was with your friend, you said that they, you eventually had the opportunity to work with some like really high end equipment, and you were talking about like fancy microphones, and and you did say that um, you felt like in that moment you realized the importance of having good quality gear. Um, yeah, and then yeah, and then absolutely. I. And then I came across an article that you did with Vintage King where you were talking about um, it kind of came across that the sentiment was that gear wasn't really that important to you. At some level, I have always said, I've always said at some level, it's okay. not important, but it has to be at the baseline pro level. It doesn't have to be Neve, right? You have to go buy like Neve or Neve clones even, right? Yeah. Like it ha- that has a sound or API or API clones. Those are all great and they do make a difference without any question, but just the mic preamps built into a modern interface now are great. It's about, that's good enough to get, if, mm-hmm. if you know how to post-process things and, or choose microphones that are right for the application, you can get a lot out of just like a, a Sapphire interface by, you know, or the Audient Evo 4s, which I have. A, I have an Evo 8 or the Evo sp16 or whatever like now i have a couple of those and those are great sounding mic preamps they're not they don't sound like anything but when i track stuff i did some comparison of some of my old vintage microphones some of my like uh rft gefell capsule microphones with some of my more modern microphones and they're like wow you can hear the difference between the microphones because the mic preamps are just clear and good you know and the ribbon mics and all that so i think the gear does make a difference but once you're at a certain point of quality, then it's all very close to each other. And I think most of the gear you can buy now is really great. You can't go wrong with buying an SE microphone, $300, $400 microphone, and recording everything with that. Yeah, you yeah. can't go wrong with that. It's really hard to get bad sound now. Of course. So the gear, but back then, I guess it comes back to the context of back then. In Fair. the mid 90s, Pro gear was pro gear. Pro, non-pro gear was non-pro gear, sonically. There was Absolutely. a huge difference between like a Porta Studio, which is a cool sound. Huge difference between a Porta Studio and a Pultec tube mic preamp from, from Motown. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Studios, from Motown Studios, like with a microphone, with a C12 plugged into it. There's a big difference between those two things. Like, Yeah, the technology has definitely become a lot more accessible, a lot more affordable, and... Uh, yeah, I guess that that discrepancy of of the good gear versus the bad gear, it, it, the that window has just definitely shrunk down a lot. Way, especially with plugins. I think that that without any question, because plugins and the sound that plugins can bring to the table. Um, I mean, the argument is over now with analog versus digital. When there's there's the, the diehard guys who are like they sum out of the box and and there's continuously like. You know, like, you had to use a summing mixer and do all this stuff. It's like, no, you don't. Like, absolutely, without any question, when you do really dig into it, um, sonically, mixing in the box as, is as good as summing in any way, shape, or form, analog domain, and can be better in some ways because you can do things you can't do in an analog domain unless you have a large format console with a bunch of crazy buses and routing. Or you can do a bunch of crazy sub routing and parallel processing, um, and you can, you just can't do the same thing in a domain with just a summing mixer 
unless mm-hmm. you get really real fancy and get a bunch of conversion, right? You get 32 IO and you do a bunch of like routing and sub routing and sub mixers. And then you can maybe do some interesting stuff, but what you can do in the box and summing it, 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 it I would say for the, the whole big picture of all of this, so the end result at the end of the day, um, it really like, you'd be hard pressed to, to do a better mix on an analog board than you can do in the box at this point. So I think that, that, that's that conversation's over in my opinion when there's people who go no you gotta do this and this and i'm like yeah, yeah i don't know yeah i don't think so <laughs> and also like at this point too i think that like you know there's music has been made digitally for well over decades now you know and like and and yes and, it has and that's what people are used to hearing and at the end of the day, I mean, truthfully, the, the audience doesn't really care either. You know, like it's, it's the engineers that are the only ones that are really nitpicking about. The like, audience does not care at all how it's no. recorded. I guarantee yeah. you that, that like any song you play to someone, if they like it, they like it. They don't care if it was recorded on a boom box or recorded onto a two inch 24 track Studer, you know, with a Neve console mixing on an SSL, like all the old, the big, the, the, the the big studio big money thing that happened in the late nineties, like where it was like uh, the kind of the pinnacle of the analog world, mm-hmm. where analog tape. And I do think analog tape is valid still as yeah. a process, without any question. Like if you can use analog tape somewhere in your process to change the sound, it's absolutely valid. It's a valid format. Is it required to get a good production on a record? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But it's a valid format for creating a sound and altering the sound and adding the, those, those uh, nonlinear things that happen on analog tape, the compressing of the high end, the, the, the taming of transients information at the high frequencies and things like that. Like um, other harmonic distortions and overtones and the nonlinear frequency response of the head gap and things like that of, of tape machines. Those are all valid tools so yeah, absolutely. Go buy yourself a cassette tape machine or buy yourself some kind of tape processing device to run stuff through to get the sound of it. But does that mean that you're making shitty records because you don't own a two-inch 24 track and a big analog <laughs> board? No, absolutely not. Your ideas are way more, way more important. The ideas yeah. and the music are way more important than the technology around it. Like, yeah. So if you had to kind of create like a, a hierarchy of what actually matters during that recording process, what would you say that that would look like uh yeah i'd say that on the tracking side of production of for the stuff that really like sticks like when you go back and just from my own experience can i, I can only talk about my own experiences because i can't i haven't wasn't in rooms for other studios at other records done by other people so some some people you know would think that when someone talks about their own work that it's it sounds slightly egotistical but that's the only reference i have so it's easier for me to discuss uh, my viewpoints on it from my experience. So like a record, like say Lana Del Rey's um, ultra violence is a, it's a big artist name thing to do. Right. So it's best to talk about those big things. It gives people context, right? Sure. They're like, yeah. okay, that's a huge record. Let's talk about that because it's what people are interested in hearing. Um, the sound of any one of the songs that I was involved in tracking, not all of them, but there was about seven or eight songs on the release that I was involved in tracking and mixing those songs started the sound of it starts like anything that's really good anything that sticks over the time tested time is the song the ideas behind the song the musicians and how they make those ideas happen the technology and how that's captured like so like all the tech around that's like the mic 
mic position, the mic preamp, and the gear that's post the mic preamp that helps shape and tone of it is is important. But the song, the ideas, and the performance, and who's performing it, and the instruments, and how those are tuned, like drum sets and tuning, what amps, how those amps are placed in the room, the room acoustics that are affecting everything, how those things are bleeding or not bleeding on each other, all of those play a higher point of the hierarchy than the gear does. The gear is the last in the line. Yep. Like in that process, it really is more, the gear absolutely can help shape it, but what's coming through the microphones, what's happening in the room in real time and how the musicians are communicating with each other and how people are interacting to the music in real time to get the human inner interface, the human aspect of it out is always more important. So like, it was always my goal when tracking, right? When I learned this early on is it became a thing, you know, and, and it was a hard lesson because I think I had, I was, I'd get real focused earlier on in my career of like the sound, the sound, the sound of what's coming through the speakers and less on what the experience was like for the musicians and the process. And so by the time I worked for Dan Auerbach, I really quickly like knew from past experiences that what the most important thing was is how everyone on the floor, the musicians playing together were feeling and interacting in real time so they could do their best. And so like my job was to enhance that feeling and that, that process and to allow them to get the expression of what they're doing out as quickly as possible with the least amount of friction in it. So like I wasn't there to create friction. I was there to add uh, a frictionless process or, or lubricate, which is a terrible word, but um, <laughs> for, for what I'm trying to say, it's the only word that comes to mind. <laughs> a way of getting it so that when someone needed to do something and wanted to do an overdub or whatever, that it wasn't about what microphone it was about, how quickly could I get an ar- a track armed and then recording that tambourine overdub. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, Hey, let's wait, wait, hold on. Me move a mic out and set it up for the tambourine overdub. It's like there's mics in the room, arm a track that that mic is connected to name the track tambourine, turn the he- turn it into the headphone mix up. And point at them and go like walk over there and they go what and like and they get closer to the, right there okay go and like yep. have the tambourine overdub done the moment is thought of the moment they walk out in the live room from the control room after having a discussion about what to do they walk out in the live room by the time they walk out and grab find the tambourine they want and put headphones on the track's armed and the mm-hmm. headphone mix cue is set up so thirty seconds of time I'm ready to track the tambourine. And that's how with everything, guitar overdubs, vocals, background vocals, everything. It's not about anything but getting them in the zone and keeping everything in the zone as much as possible. So there was a ton of records where background vocals and things like that are done on whatever microphone was there in the live room. Mm -hmm. It was the easiest one for them to get on. So if it was an RE15 sitting on a stand that was a room mic or was just a talkback mic, we hear everyone talking in the room right? That's recording it as a room mic, but it just allowed us to hear everyone. That just became the background. Look, right there. That mic right there. I'll walk out there. Maybe if they need help with headphones, bam, help them get their headphones situated and they're ready to go. And it took less than five minutes to get the background vocals ready to go and they can start singing. Because usually in Nashville, it's your hi- they're hired people. So they come in and they're pros. They're going to cut five songs in like 20 minutes and leave. You know what I mean? So like, <laughs> you know, or, or five songs in a, an hour or something and they're going to leave. So like, you're not there to like 
futz around with like, was that the right mic? I don't know. Let's get this other mic out and find out. You know, it's like, it sounds good enough, man. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think I yeah. think in that same article I read with you, you were talking about using like SM57s as overheads and stuff like that. And I love that oh, yeah. idea. It's like most people would be like, I can't do that. That's not a condenser microphone. Like, you know, it's not going to give me a good set. <laughs> I don't mind. It, sometimes it's what's needed like in a song. Like if someone plays you something and it has a different tone, you have to kind of go into your memory bank of what microphones sound like from experience and go, you know, I think maybe we can get achieve that thing you're going for if I just use a different mic on the overhead right instead of this 47 style mic or ribbon or whatever it is is smooth and big and has a lot of low ends like maybe the overhead mic needs to have very little low low end maybe it needs to have mostly everything from like 150 and up it doesn't need any low end so the time so it's more of this boxy focus mid-range sound that the drums need and often i'm mixing now i'm doing that to at least one or two of the really great sounding mics like i get sent stuff and it's recorded really well and I'm like, but there's nothing this boxy sounding. So then I'll take something that's recorded really well and completely get rid of its fidelity and turn yep. it into the boxy thing. <laughs> because it's like, that's what the <laughs> drums need. Like most of oh, the time. That's cool. <laughs> like, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so do you see like, obviously you, you brought up that point of like, it's more about the creating the, focusing on the feeling that the artist has in the studio. Um, but do you ever see the flow? Yep. The, yeah, the flow. Um, and you also talked about how like, you know, the gear, these days is definitely like it's definitely at a point where even cheap gear is still sounding great. So do you see a point in like going to any big studios these days? Like is is there Absolutely. a reason for that? Yeah. The reason is because you're dealing with a big studio has a gear that you don't have. Fair. Microphones that you don't have. And room acoustics that you don't have. Right. So that's the big that's the major thing. And I think that's kind of something that why I think the bigger established studios that are in Nashville and LA will continue to operate maybe on smaller budgets because like more music is being produced in the box with like programming, which is just the reality of, of technology. But if your goal is to capture dr- like a drum set and Hammond organs with it through a B3 and, and your goal is to capture some air moving, then absolutely. I doubt in your home studio, or in my basement that I could capture the same air that a room that has a 20 foot ceiling, the same movement of the air in the room, the same distance, the, uh, the spatial cue information you can create when you set up a deca tree and you record a ham and organ and you have a deca tree with some mics on it for the room sound ambience. Like you're not going to get that same thing. Um, and it recording a full band live together in a, in a room that's spaced out just the right amount, not too far apart, but just enough where you can direct direct the um, amps and things away, not blowing right into the drums, but they're still on the drums. There's still some bleed, vice versa, but nothing is directly. We can go both things the right amount, but there's bleed, but this bleed that's reflected off of walls are kind of far away, so it becomes a little more re- reverby and ambient. Those kind of sounding records can't be really done to the same level you could do it in the box. You can trick the ear with early reflection, convolution reverbs and things like that. But you still are going to get a much more cohesive glue to the whole thing when you can track a whole project live together as much as possible. And I think when you're talking about rock and roll and music that isn't highly processed sounding, like, like I'm not talking like, um, you know, I'm not talking like lonerism by, 
by um, Tame Impala, which is like a highly processed sound. I'm talking like the National, right? Mm-hmm. Listen to the band like the National, listen to their records. That's tracked in a way where things are happening in that way. Like there's certain, or um, uh, another guy who I really love his work and he does a lot of great stuff. Um, what's his name? He's, he's done a bunch of like Nick Cave stuff. And he did, I think he's done some other, what is his name? He's an LA guy, but he's very much that kind of thing, like tracking stuff live in a room, letting stuff bleed. Um, I can't think of his name. I'm, I'm, I'll do this every time with someone who's, who I should know their name. <laughs> um, but anyway, so that is kind of the, the thing with certain kinds of music that you kind of have to take that into consideration that if you're doing, if you have an album that you really like, do the research, figure out how that was done. I guarantee you that a lot of it was cut in that kind of way if it has that kind of sound to it, like purposeful Fair, yeah. room in, room involvement and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that said, though, like a lot of our listeners are definitely working out of their homes and they might not mm-hmm. have those ideal spaces, you know, like the, the big room. Try your the, space the out, though. Still. Yeah. yeah. So I was going to ask, like, any tips there on, like, what you would recommend to get the most out of Set any, mics like, up. Yeah. Set mics up. Don't be precious. Set mics up. Be, be experimental. Don't be afraid to put mics in corners and weird places and like set some extra mics up around. Like if you're tracking someone singing, sitting on the couch playing acoustic guitar, set another mic in the room or two mics in the room and to capture them and then do all your group them together and do your overdubs together. So as you're punching in, you're also punching the rooms and so you're capturing, creating playlists of the room mics also do it all together and, and treat those as, uh, a part of the vocal performance and then if they work when once you start listening back you'll go oh that's a cool sound you know and you blend them in just a little bit and once you've committed to like your comped vocal which includes comping those room takes together and getting your crossfades right commit those down as files and even commit the volume automation so that the faders the panning of volume like bounce those into a stereo the room mics into a stereo thing so the panning and an EQing you're doing to them and the level they are compared to the vocal is kind of sentence more of where you want it to be. So like when I get it or someone who's mixing it, who isn't you isn't getting this raw audio file in the folder, this full volume. And then I'm reestablishing a relationship between these purposeful ideas and then production's getting lost. And I'm sitting there um, changing it. And you're and you're going. I don't like how it sounds. It doesn't sound like our demo, and it's because you had it mixed lower than I. The room mic's lower, or in a different way than I did. So, commit is another thing I always tell people. Don't be afraid to commit ideas, even if it like ends up being uh, sonically not perfect. Um, by committing to something, you're kind of building into the song what your intention is. So that by the time it reaches the next person who might be working on it that they can hear the intention and they're not making drastic rebalancing decisions for something that you've worked a lot of time, spent a lot of time trying to refine um, and be experimental, move mics around, put, put, set some mics up, get some of those like mic preamp stomp box, mic preamps. So you can run guitar pedal loops into, there's a couple different products out there. You know, radial makes one you just set a couple room mics and put guitar pedals like that have modulation on them do stuff like do strange stuff and capture those while you're cutting the acoustic guitar vocal and have those your room mics but they're changing and modulating and doing stuff or distorted or whatever i mean play around don't be like afraid to completely 
try something and it could be just a waste of time. That's all it is. <laughs> if it didn't work, it's, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you, you lost 10 minutes of your life setting up those microphones, you know, like big deal. Like, But you might have learned to never do it again. Or maybe you'll learn that that is the coolest thing in the world that you need to do all the time. Yeah, exactly. You may capture, you may capture a, a, a vibe and a sound that's so perfect for the song that if you didn't try to experiment, it would have just sounded like someone singing and playing with acoustic guitar, which is fine, but it may not have the thing that you wanted to have. You know, Absolutely. and that's when you go and listen to records that have a repeatable thing, there's so much intention behind what's being done in those records. Like, you know, like Kevin Shields doing My Bloody Valentine records, purposefully spent hours practicing the feedback part he was going to do as a layer. He would spend an hour or two practicing it before he'd record it. He'd sit there and practice what he was planning to do, like some kind of feedback layer. And he had in his head what he was trying to go for and he'd practice it over and over and over and then he'd be like, okay, and he'd cut it and it would be done. Yeah. And he'd spend an hour or so there just listening, like practicing and alone in the studio. Tell the engineer, like, just put, give me the remote for the tape machine and just like, or put the tape <laughs> machine on loop, playback where it hits the marker point and goes back and rewinds and plays through it again and he would just practice it for an hour. An engineer would leave the room and he'd come back, come back and he'd be like, oh, boom, bam. Yeah, love that. Yeah, yeah, you got to be intentional with it for sure. Um, w- one thing you had also mentioned earlier was the idea of bleed, and um, you were talking about it more in the context of like a bigger studio. But uh, you know, bleed is obviously something that's going to be really important if you're working in a small studio because it's unavoidable if everyone's jamming in the same room. Um, so might as well use it for your yeah. advantage. And and that's one of the one of the things that I read about you is that you tend to. It sounded like you tend to lean into bleed, and that you're kind of you know, you're, you're more accepting of it. Uh, whereas a lot of people would be like, well, if that's, if I'm working in a small studio, I got to cut everyone. I got to track everyone separately and like completely. It depends on what the goal is. Yeah. I just tell people like, what are we trying to do? Like if the goal is to capture live performances, like with musicians playing off of each other, then the bleed is great. If the goal is to capture the drummer first and then add overdubs and maybe we might may have to do edits to the arrangement and the guitar parts aren't going to be the same because we haven't really written the guitar parts yet, and we're just trying to get some drum performances that we can chop up, then that's a whole different conversation, right? And we're producing a song in in more of a modern, like, chop things up, have drummer play different grooves uh, over different parts of the song and see what groove is working to a scratch guitar part so the drummer has some kind of musical direction. And then you want to have isolation and you want to highly process those drums to get them to sound like something and have no harmonic bleed from instruments ghosting in the background that aren't supposed to be there later on, then yeah, absolutely piecemeal it one thing at a time, click tracks if you need to. But if you're trying to capture like records and recordings that are people playing together, um, I think bleed has to be an important part of it because if you go back and listen to the records that, you like that have um go back and listen to records that you like that are recorded more that way let's say the 60s and 70s would be a good example of that that i guarantee you that a ton of them are bleeding all over each other like most of every elvis album was like that like just to give you an example every album done at sun studios was like them playing around with what how to position the rca ribbon mic so they would capture the right kind of room bleed Sometimes purposely putting the drums far away from the 
a certain microphone on, on the piano. So the drums were being picked up by the piano mic, but mostly the piano the drums are there a little bit <laughs> like that kind of <laughs> stuff. Like, um, it just go through the history of records, like where bleed is, was a major part of the sound of stuff. So Al green, all that stuff, like those records all have like, um, bleed. If you were to get those multi-tracks and listen to me, you'd be like, Oh wow. Bleed all in fucking Led Zeppelin. <laughs> like, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think it's important to keep that into mind, in mind, and and to allow that to happen, and maybe experiment within your space that you're, if you're in there for a while and you get used to how your bleed is, you can kind of plan the um, bleed to work to your advantage, and not be a detriment. So, like learning to position the amps with the drum set in a way where you maybe have some baffling on the guitar amp to keep the drums cymbals from getting directly on the microphone, but the reflected sound off the wall that's in the other side of the amp is okay. Right. That kind of thing. Gotcha. Um, like just allowing the bleed to maybe come, but it's indirectly and listening to it. Like if the bleed you're, you're getting has too much of a certain frequency that's harsh and getting in the way of the vocal and you can't get rid it's something that's not allowing you to have the clarity of the tone then you got to, yeah, you have to question how the bleed's interacting. Um, so I maybe not lean into that stuff if it's something that's atrocious, but from experience in experimenting, I kind of learned that if you can plan the bleed out or at least listen to it early on and see how it's going to affect things, that it can, it tends to add uh, an extra amount of a three dimensional space to things. Like it, when you put all the tracks up together, it you start getting this depth that you can't get like if everything was piecemealed you'd be sure. trying to do it later on by adding reverbs and doing reflection things and short delays and creating space for things you're like that bleed is creating a, a three-dimensional like depth to things yeah of course if it's if it's planned out not planned but it, you're you're allowing it to be there and you're um you've kind of compensated for any frequency imbalances by um sometimes just in pro tools or logic whatever you edit in between moments when the other instruments and playing so the bleed is still there but you're maybe EQing it a little bit differently I do that a lot when I get stuff where the bleed is there and it's important that it's there but maybe I just EQ it a little bit when the, the main instrument isn't playing so that when a bleed comes back in it's not this resonant weird frequency popping out just kind of smooth it out so that it's sounds more like reverb and less like a weird honky resonance that can happen like uh, in bleed and some dynamics and stuff like you can get or harsh high frequency symbol bleed um, sometimes needs to be uh, EQ'd out at different times so when it's coming through it's not going blowing up uh, in the mix it's a lot of trickery stuff like that you can do post but if you can do it pre-production while tracking um, by switching the microphone repositioning the amp to the drum set and so the microphone uh, it's picking up more of the guitar, but the bleed it is getting is like more of a reflection off of a wall that's now allowing those symbols to get all over it. Things like that, like kind of listening and kind of learning about the the microphone and how the microphone's position is affecting that. Uh, choosing different microphones for different features, like uh, figure of eight ribbon mics on guitar amps and facing the null of it at the drum set. So you're getting no drum set on it, but the information coming from the other part in the room that the back of the mic's picking up there you get some of the bleed but it's pointing at a some wall way over there and it's quite yeah. delayed so it's past the Haas effect it's more than 20 milliseconds of distance 
20 feet roughly. Yep. Like the total round trip from the drum set to the wall to the back of that mic is more than 20 feet. It's not going to cause that comb filtering problem in the mid range, in the high end, because you're past the Haas effect. Yeah. So stuff like that, like no kind of learning about acoustics and physics helps in that way. Like knowing you have like this window or anything less than 20 milliseconds is going to cause comb filtering an audible frequency range. Yeah, that's great. That's all really good advice and definitely some good some good uh, approaches to dealing with bleed in people's mixes. So uh, thanks for, for mentioning those things. Um, you mentioned reverb a second ago too. And when when it comes to your productions, one element of your productions that I've always really in- admired is the sounds of your reverbs. Like I, I feel like you do a really great job of getting like big lush sounding reverbs, but like they they're not stepping on the toes of instruments like they're not making the mix sound muddy i find you have this very tasteful way of doing it and i'm curious to know if you have any tips for getting great reverb sounds without making a mix sound muddy uh yeah that's a big one so um it can sometimes be where you have to um i mean i'll start i really quickly when i'm starting a mix i'll i just start feeding things into reverbs and things to just get a sense of how it's going to work right i try stuff and just kind of uh, these are preset things in a template that I use, you know, like plate reverbs. and. So you do this right during like tracking? Oh, during tracking. Same thing in tracking, yeah. So I would do the same thing in tracking. I st- I may have plugins that are sends and tracking that will be there, or I'm running sends out of Pro Tools into like a plate reverb that's in the studio. So like on Lana Dale Ray's Ultraviolence, a lot of the reverb on that, her vocal was the plate reverb, the Echo Plate 3, or Echo Plate 1, sorry, that we had there, that Dan has still, um, that we used a lot. Um, and I would feed that out that, uh, you know, send that out. And sometimes I'd even put the, just the, the mod delay three on that to put a pre delay and maybe an EQ pre filter on that send that would feed the plate reverb, like inside of Pro Tools, use mm-hmm. a pre delay inside of Pro Tools. Or if I was looking for something where I could play with feedback, it'd be one of the tape delays in the room. And that would feed. Pro Tools line output into the tape delay, from the tape delay into the plate, and then the plate reverb back into Pro Tools recording it while the vocal's cutting down and using that plate reverb return as a grouped thing with the lead vocal. So as I'm doing punch-ins and whatnot, I'm capturing the performance and it's being printed. And if I find the overlap of the crossfades won't work, then I'll just go and reprint the whole reverb. Once I get the comped vocal, I'll reprint the reverb. And if it seems like we're going to do a lot of comping, Maybe I won't print the reverb, but it's just on input monitor. So it's there so mm-hmm. that artists can feed off of it and listen and work in real time off of it. And then once we, and I can work on dialing it in a little bit. And by the time we get the comping vocals, all the comping done, then I cut down, I print that. So it's printed Gotcha. Um, in, at that moment. And now that is a living part of the production and it's committed to. So yeah, plate reverbs, reverbs, outboard reverbs, spring box reverbs, even outboard digital reverbs that you have. If you have laying around, if you have a certain one that you think just works really good for you, take a send, put a send in Pro Tools out of a line output, feed into that, feed that back in, record it into Pro Tools or into Logic or whatever. Um, you can do all of this stuff in the box. You don't need any outboard gear to do the exact same thing. You can run aux sends into reverbs and have those coming back, and those are just a part of the... And I do that really... At the very beginning of tracking anything, I start establishing uh, production direction. Um, so I'm working with a producer who has direction and they're giving you direction. They're telling you what they want, what they're going for. Then you're helping that along as quickly as possible, having things set up. Even if you like have a template, like I have a tracking template that just has a bunch of stuff in it. It's ready to go so that like when we start tracking a song, 
I can just slowly like, oh, sound sounds like if we put that guitar into that real quick to see what it sounds like while while they're cutting it down, just start feeding stuff into things, and you start you instantly start creating the depth of everything right off the bat, and then before you know it, you've got really far into this mix at that point. You're tracking it, and you're adding the the flourishes and adding the bells and whistles right then and there, um, and it's done. And then the mixes are just like automating things, sweetening up a little things widening certain things um that's like that's pretty much like every record I di- i've done that i've tracked in the last 10 or more years or probably more 12 like 12 years or 13 years that's pretty much the de facto thing um Love and it. i started kind of thinking that way when i started working for carl craig a techno dj in, in detroit because he was very much in that kind of mindset mindset of committalness committing to uh, an idea as quickly as possible getting there like dialing in the sound like running taking mpc and running the mpc into this compressor or this thing or this eq and getting the sound of it tracked a certain way so it sounded the way the goal of the sound was there and you weren't like going oh we got to fix it later on when we mix it it's like nope it's done the delays the reverbs all anything being used are set up on the board and ready to be uh accessed so if it's, if your board is inside of logic or pro tools or whatever then have everything ready to be accessed while you're tracking. Like, yeah, have, use thing. You know, use these tools in front of you. Um, don't be afraid to try things you normally wouldn't do. Like, you know, like sometimes just change it up on yourself too. Which I, I do every probably every three or four months. I change my mix template drastically. We'll go and <laughs> like I'm not using these reverbs at all anymore. I'm going to use these reverbs now. <laughs> like, see yeah. what happens. Like, <laughs> I love that. Well, I think it does make a lot of sense that if you are tracking with all those reverbs in in during the tracking phase then yeah obviously everything that you're doing is like being designed to fit around those reverbs and like that's all part of that sound so it makes it easier to get the right balance of everything because you've been working with it from the start as opposed to like what most people do is they throw it in at the end and then it's like oh shit this doesn't work or you know it takes a lot more time to figure it out so um the goal is to have a reverb on something then, then you should have it on from the beginning and then you can start reacting to it and start deciding how you're going to filter the pre-send. Like if you need to like get rid of high end or low end, you don't want the S's from a vocal going into a plate. So it's not going shh, shh. So you can make the plate really bright, but you don't want the reverb to go shh on all the S's, right? But you want, the, you want all the tone of the voice reverbing. So sometimes you got to put a de-esser in front of the reverb send and smack it like 50 dB of S's. Complete get rid of the S's. Like don't be, like it doesn't matter if they have S's being fed at all, it's like, you know, 30 dB of DSing happening going into the plate send. Why not? Right. And then now you have this plate send that's like, you hear the, that's kind of how I deal with plates or reverbs and mixes when I'm mixing, when I'm not tracking. So from the tracking side, I start in the beginning as much as possible filtering and getting things. So I do the same thing in mixing, but I get something and start sending things into reverbs. I start listening to how certain aspects of the, of the uh, tonal thing being sent, like the instrument itself has a certain amount of frequencies and how that reacts to that reverb. Maybe that's not the re- right reverb, or maybe there's something interesting about that reverb with that instrument, but I need to change the, the amount of frequencies being fed into that reverb. So maybe the, I have always in my template, I have a, a pre and post EQ and all my effects sends all my effects returns, my bus effects buses. There's a pre EQ and a post EQ. I just use FabFilter Pro Q because it's easy and you can do dynamic EQing if you need to. 
Um, but I just will, I will shape either going into it or if I feel that I need to we'll see what it sounds like if I shape it post the reverb to see what it sounds like. And I'll play with that stuff in that way too, to get it reverbs to fit, like you said, in mixes so that they sound cool and they're not stopping on something else. Sometimes it comes down to getting really crazy and weird, not really crazy, but just kind of thinking out of the box and going, okay, I love this reverb on this one instrument or set of instruments, but it's clouding up something about the background vocals and the lead vocal. So maybe what I'll do is I will take the lead vocal and background vocals and send a send from those and then put something like soothe to on the reverb, post the re post the reverb, put soothe to post the plugin reverb and feed a sidechain send from the lead vocal and background vocals into soothe and have Soothe control certain frequencies of the vocals in the reverb. So as the reverb's decaying, the lead vocal and background vocals can cut through the reverb and duck only the frequencies that we need to hear from the vocals. So like everything in the harmonic mm -hmm. range of like, say, 200 up to about 5K or 6K. Like just have soothing out, getting rid of ducking. Maybe sometimes it's pretty drastic how much cutting is happening, um, playing with how wide and narrow the bands are in Soothe. And getting that, allowing the vocal. And I, I sometimes will do the same thing to like my guitar and keyboard groups too. We'll put soothe on it and have the vocals feeding into that, side chaining it, compressing the information out of the way so the vocal can sit in the middle of this dense thing. And then those things can be still very loud when the vocal's not singing. So every time the vocal sings, certain frequencies disappear. It doesn't sound like anything. You can't really tell that things are disappearing. You just hear, hear the vocal very clearly. Yeah. Same thing with reverb. Same thing with um, sometimes I want the reverb on the vocal to be better than the reverb on the guitar. So sometimes the reverb on the vocal will duck the reverb on the guitars from side, like sending sends off the reverb into a compressor that's side chaining the reverb on the guitars. <laughs> so the vocal reverb goes and then that's ducking the vocal, the reverb on the guitar enough to be able to hear the vocal reverb a little bit more. But then when the vocal reverb isn't happening at all, the guitar reverb can be super big and lush. And then you play these games yeah. of pushing things up and down. It's like doing automation. I just have to go manually and do all this automation. I'm just automating it with sidechain compression and doing these post reverbs and things like that. So you that. can think outside of the box a lot inside the box. That's why I tell people, I'm like, you can't do that kind of stuff in an analog domain without a lot of expensive equipment. I tell people this. I'm like, yeah, you can get all fancy with your summing mixer and say like it has like all this headroom and does all this stuff and i'm like yeah but you're not even using any of the dynamic range with the digital format you're recording with so why do you care about having a plus 28 db headroom of a mix bus of an analog summing mixer if you're going to squash your mix to to a negative eight lefts or a negative six lefts in the end like why are you even concerned about the dynamic headroom of your summing mixer if what you're doing is <laughs> mastering everything at negative six bluffs <laughs> anyway so like like yeah. i think that people aren't utilizing the dynamic ability of digital enough to even consider the fact that it is more dynamic than most analog circuits are even capable of handling once Fair. you get to the noise floor so yeah. it's like <laughs> <laughs> right on man. So anyways yeah yeah well, I don't want to take up much more of your time. No, right? no, you, no. You, I, I, I can, I'll answer one more. Uh, no, I was going to say, we, we can start to wrap up now. Like, um, uh, 
yeah, for, for for people who might want to follow you or learn more about you online, like what's the best way for them to do that to maybe potentially work with you? Yeah, I have I have Facebook, but I don't look at it that often. So if you go to my Facebook, you will see that I just have right my main photo says go to condoquee.com <laughs> to to get if you need to reach out to me and if you want to if you I have two contact forms on my webpage. One is if you want to work for me work with me and hire me to do some work. Another one is if you just have questions, right? So I get, just so I know, like one is like, if you send me an email through the, you just ask me a question, you want me to work for you, then I'm just going to redirect you back to the, to the one that says, Hey, I want to hire you. Cause the one I want you to hire has more details. You have to put in, like you have to give me your phone number. You have to put your email address in. You have to give me a link to, a, to some kind of, uh, listening format of the current stuff you want me to work on like here's the demos yeah. or here's the the songs were in production so that i can listen to it before i get back to you and get a sense of what you're even talking about versus like hey i want to work with you and then you send me an email address and i'm like then i have to ask you 10 more questions like so what do you <laughs> want to do what are you hiring me for blah 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 it's like so there's two different forms one's very simple for just asking questions another one is to actually hire me um so use one accordingly uh, use the one that's right for what your goal is. Instagram is the other thing. I, I only social media I really use is Instagram. And it's not you know, you can find me on that. But my website's the best place for looking at my discography, listening to. I have some. I don't want to say secret, but they're just like I have some mixes of stuff that weren't the released mixes, but they were mixes that we were doing. Cool in the studio so you can hear some records I've worked on where like this is the mix of it while we were tracking versus nice. what was released so then you can be like oh wow that's really different sounding or even better I you know and that's come to my opinion of like some of the stuff I've tracked that I had didn't get to mix if you go and listen to my mixes you're like or the mixes we were doing while tracking it's all of us but like things that I was my I was involved in those mixes sound better to me but whatever Right. I digress. Like it's, <laughs> there's the politics involved in mixing records too, which is like, you know, they're like, oh, we're going to have so-and-so mix the record. Of course they're going to just like that guy's mixes because they're paying him 50 grand to mix the record. Why, why would they not like his mixes? Right. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> like, like they're not going to go against and be like, oh, you know, we do like the rough mixes better. Like, even though we spent 50 grand in mixing an album, <laughs> like they're going <laughs> right to use on, the, <laughs> use that budget. They're not going to. So yeah, there's of that. <laughs> well, right on, man. Colin, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And yeah, definitely a lot of uh, great advice that you gave throughout this episode. So I'm sure people are going to find it very helpful. So again, thank Hopefully. you very much for being on here. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you for uh, your patience with my long-winded answers because I think it's the only way I know how to communicate these kind of things. So that was my interview with Colin Dupuis, and I thought it was awesome to hear just how flexible he was and has been throughout his entire career with that idea of just saying yes to everything and ultimately trying to figure out what is the best fit for you. I thought that that was a really great lesson that a lot of people who are listening to this, if you're thinking about getting into this industry, that is an important lesson to take on and just try things and see what feels good to you, what doesn't, and Come up with your goal for what your career is going to look like and how you're going to ultimately achieve that. And, you know, I thought that Colin brought up some really great points there about how to keep focused and how to also just explore your own uh, personal skill development and all that kind of stuff. So I thought that it was really great to hear him talk about that. And I also really enjoyed hearing him talk about things like reverb and how he 
dials in reverb right from the beginning of sessions and works with that as part of the sound. I think that that's a really, really cool approach to making records because it pretty much guarantees that the reverbs are going to fit and that everything's going to sound good with that reverb in it. And I think it's really important that, you know, he did say that, you know, you only really need to do that if the reverb is going to be a big part of the project. Like if it's someone like a Alana Del Rey, you know that there's going to be lots of reverb on her voice. That's that's kind of her aesthetic, that kind of thing. So why would you leave that till the end and not know if it's going to fit or not, right? So if you can get it right at the source and you get the vibe for the album right from the beginning, it's one of those things where it's worth committing to right away so that you can make sure that the vision of that album or that song gets carried out to the fullest degree. So yeah, I really loved hearing him talk about that. I thought it was really awesome. So yeah, lots of great stuff to take away from this episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it as well. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. If you can, leave a review on the Apple Podcast as well. That goes a long way in terms of helping the podcast reach a bigger audience. And it's always great to get feedback from what you guys like about the podcast and all that kind of stuff. So please leave an honest review on that Apple Podcast app. It really goes a long way and it's greatly appreciated. And if you're looking for additional help with creating pro mixes from your home studio and you're not quite sure what steps to be taking, if you're working on your tracks and you're just feeling like you've kind of hit a plateau with them, I would love to help you out. And inside of my Amplitude coaching program, I work one-on-one with students to help them get their mixes sounding just as good as their favorite records. And I work with you back and forth on your mixes to make sure that you're getting the results you always wanted. So if you're interested in learning more about this program and getting one-on-one help, access to all of my programs, mastering, and a whole bunch more, all of that is included inside of Amplitude. And like I said, this program is designed to help you finish your music and get it out there. So if you're interested in learning more about this, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude and you can find all the information on there. And then I'd love to hop on a call with you just to learn more about your goals. I only work with people who I truly believe I can help. In fact, I reject a lot of people who apply for this program simply because I don't think that it's the best fit or that I don't think I could truly help them. So if you are a good fit for this program, if you're someone who I truly believe I can help, then I know you're going to get amazing results with this program. So definitely look into it if you're interested in getting help. And I would love to work with you to help you get your music done and put it out in the world. So once again, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude for that. And other than that, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com. Thank you.